0: As we barrel through October and head straight for the holiday season it's amazing to think that there's only a few interview episodes of your favorite book until we get towards our finale this being one of them. There's a few special episodes coming your way and I'm really excited for those but the interview content as we know it We're starting to reach the home stretch here and what better way to bring back an author we've talked about before on this show and talking about a book that I've had on my TBR for a very long time. Welcome to your favorite book. All right. So, Ethan, thank you for joining me today. I hope, you know, all is well in your part of the country. Uh, (laughs) I've been asking people about weather lately, and then I ran into someone talking about the hurricane, and I'm like, maybe this isn't the most lighthearted question in the world.
1: Thanks. Uh, Thank you for having me, and I'm doing well. And, uh, yeah, the weather's been hot here in Fresno, California, where I am. But it has – It's what we're always thinking about here is, like, fire season and Mm – fire season at least in the the part where i am is not as bad as it's been the last couple of years so that's something to be thankful for
0: yeah that's certainly good to hear for sure it's just you know a little little chilly not so bad here in chicago i mean i'll embrace it while i can but um, enough of that let's jump right in so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about this book you have coming out
1: Sure. I'm Ethan Chatonier. My my new book that's coming out from Tin House is called Singer Distance. Uh, it's, a, it's a novel. I'm a fiction writer. I had an earlier collection of stories called Warnings from the Future with Acre Books. Uh, this novel, Singer Distance, is sort of an alternate history, and it's based off some real-life astronomy, where in the, the late 1800s and early 1900s, some astronomers thought Mars was inhabited. They they thought they saw canals there. And so this book kind of imagines that there is this civilization on Mars and in the early 1900s, Earth starts communicating with it, not by radio or anything that advanced yet, but by carving enormous like installations into the Earth and lighting them on fire. And the communication that goes back and forth over the decades with Mars is a series of mathematical proofs that they post on the surface of Mars and that Earth has to solve until their math gets so advanced that we can't solve it anymore.
0: Mm, I see. Yeah. And that's a a great way of kind of summing it up. And it's a really complicated concept, but um, I'll preface this right away by saying that Uh, math and space are two of the concepts that I know so little about, and honestly, never cared at all about as a child. So when I was like, Oh, no, a math space book, like, what am I going to do? I not only did you find a way to like humanize the math aspects of this, I mean, the character relationships are really kind of what guides this book along. And it keeps you engaged with the math. And you also just find a way to relate math back to things that I know about, things like poetry and art and things that feel, I don't know, to me, more relatable and more human. And so um, I'm interested in knowing a little bit about uh, creating these characters and sort of finding that artistic nature in the world of math and astronomy.
1: Sure. Yeah. The It has to kind of do with part of the initial angle I wanted to take on the book, which is it felt it felt very interesting to me to think about the idea of a planet right next door that had a civilization that wasn't that interested in talking to us. Because, you know, usually we're looking for life very, very, very far away in the universe. And to have something so close, but so quiet seemed very sad to me. And as a fiction writer, I'm always looking for like the saddest idea possible. And so, <laughs> so I wanted to explore that. And I felt like the the thing that tied in with that thematically is just interpersonal relationships here on Earth, where we can sometimes be very close with people, very like close in close physical spaces with people, but the emotional distance is different; it's not the same. And so, it was fun to tie that in with with math and with uh, you know physics, things kind of along the lines of quantum physics and relativity, where. The universe doesn't work along the ways that we perceive it. Where, mm-hmm. you know, the way we understand time isn't actually how time works, and that sort of thing. Um, because they, there's kind of a a mystery and a mysticism to to both elements.
0: Yeah. That makes a a lot of sense, you know, just thinking outside. I remember being a kid and confused when math started including letters instead of numbers, (laughs) the numbers disappeared entirely. It was like math kept changing its definitions. And then people who went on to more and more obscure math, uh, it it just starts to take on this whole new concept where you're just kind of questioning reality itself. And this takes on a whole new lens in in your book. And you actually kind of Preface to this next question of mine, but I guess we can talk about it a bit more is, you know, I'm wondering, you know, the boundaries between science and science fiction here, as you mentioned, it originates kind of from this 1800s idea of an inhabited Mars, but then you take on this whole alternate history idea in terms of how the math is being communicated so I'm interested in knowing you know, how did you find that boundary between science and science fiction? And were those boundaries becoming, you know, more defined or more blurred kind of as you continued the writing process?
1: That's a great question. And I think it kind of has to do with that experiment of finding the right genre space for it because the themes I wanted to explore weren't really technological in nature. It was really more about human relationships. And and it's really more of a literary book in that way. And so I think I leaned toward writing it like literary realism, except with the fantastical Mm -hmm. elements added in. And so I wanted it to feel like a, not like a, a wild, speculative, very different world than we live in, but like our world plus this change with the the Martian society and the communication um, and so that's I was trying to blend in historical detail and think about how it would interact with real history the development of mathematics in the you know, 1910s and 1920s and and Einstein's theories and his papers and the beginnings of the Space Age and the in the 50s and 60s so I tried to do a mix of of research and invention so that I kind of could use that to link the two worlds, the imagined one and the the real history.
0: That makes sense. And you're great at leading into my next question every time. But uh, <laughs> so that was going to be my topic. You know, you start this book in 1960. And my question was coming back to, you know, why this year? I mean, obviously, the book does span a larger period of time. But 1960 is sort of where we're introduced with our characters sort of on their road trip. And I, I I kept thinking, you know, the prose feels very modern. Some of the things like the gender dynamics between characters felt very familiar. But yet we are rooted in almost that early paranoia or initial scientific exploration of the 60s. And so I'm curious to know, you know, why that era? What appealed to you about it? And did you at all feel limited by that time?
1: That's a great question. Uh, a couple of great questions. Uh, so I did think a lot about when to start it. And I I knew I had some forward limits as far as how, how close to the modern day I could set it. Because once you get later into the 60s, then you start getting a lot more stuff getting sent into space and a lot more mm-hmm. radio astronomy and that sort of thing where where you would get out of this mode of interplanetary signaling, which is, this is a good place to shout out one of the book's inspirations, which is a Ken Calfus novel called Equilateral, where there's there's no Martian civilization, but there's one of those astronomers who's trying to transmit a, a message this way. Uh, and it's kind of uh, about the, the follies of imperialism. Uh, so it's a different take on it, but it, it was an inspiration there. Um, and I, I liked that early... You know, pre-space age aspect of it, but I also needed enough time between the you know the late 1800s when this communication would start for it to taper off because I wanted that kind of thrill of the early communication, and then I wanted it to start to fade away. The math gets more and more difficult until we can't solve it, and then we have you know I wanted decades of silence uh, for that for that aspect to sink in. And so that was kind of where I found the balance between not going too far in the future, but having enough time for the the communication to start to disappear and for people to almost forget about it.
0: Right. So even though you're kind of showing this, you know, alternate history, the way you put it, where... These communication methods on their own haven't happened, you're being mindful of how this signaling would have taken place in different eras of time and keeping it faithful to that timeline in that way. And, you know, you're, you're right, it's not like a hard science fiction kind of book. It's very much immersed in a world that feels familiar and accessible just with this bent in a certain direction. And I think by keeping it rooted in a historically accurate kind of time frame, you know, helps with that overall immersion.
1: Yeah, you asked uh, another question, um, which was, did I feel limited by the time frame? Mm-hmm. And that was a really interesting thing that, that I had to figure out while I was writing the book, because I did not in any way intend to set out to write a historical novel that hasn't been like a big goal of mine, mm-hmm. but I needed to work with the time period. And so I was doing a lot of research to, to try and keep things roughly accurate. Um, and the, the van is really important in this book. There's this big road trip in the van to initially have the main characters try to signal Mars. And I really wanted like a, a 70s hippie van, you know, mm-hmm. like a big blue blue hippie van. Um, but those weren't around in 1960. And I was, <laughs> I was trying to find out what was the most van-like thing in 1960. And I had to use like a used newspaper van for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why like later in the book in when it goes into the seventies, Rick feels a lot of envy about some of these other vans he encounters.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's
1: my envy about like wishing I could have had that van to send him on the initial road trip.
0: <laughs> Cause that's funny. Cause I was almost picturing like the Scooby-Doo mystery machine, but that wouldn't have been like fitting with the time. Cause that was like late sixties, early seventies. And you're right. Those big hippie vans. And yeah, think <laughs> that does make sense. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and so I, I kind of decided I didn't mind. That's what I still wanted to picture the road trip in, and I don't mind if a reader is imagining the van that way, though I did try <laughs> and make it, in, you know, in terms of actual textual evidence, you know, I could demonstrate that it's a van that existed at the time.
0: That makes sense. I mean, you didn't put a talking dog in it, so there no. you go. <laughs> but um, I guess the last question, sort of staying with the uh, the lightheartedness of this part of it is, are you a space nerd? Are you someone who considers yourself a space nerd? I would say yes.
1: I'd, I'd also qualify that there are much better space nerds than me who, who kind of know the science and all the projects more in depth. So I think of, I you know, I try to be clear that I'm sort of a hobbyist space nerd and I watch the documentaries and I follow, you know, a, a, probably the more major of the space news that, that comes out. Uh, so I've always had kind of a fascination with it. But I I haven't had a, a huge amount of rigor that some people put into it. Um, but I do just kind of love the, I don't know, the it's going to sound corny, but the poetry and the mystery of space and that Carl Sagan-like wonder of it.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I th- I think that comes through in the book. I mean, there's got to be a lot of love for not only the math aspects, but the space aspects of this book in order to to write something like this and to make it feel you know, relevant and to hit home for people like me that are, aren't are even really into space or any of these topics, but it still feels emotionally relevant because the passion does come through. So, I mean, if this, if all my discussions listeners have include you in, I found this book really engaging, really enjoyable. It reads quickly. It's you know, in, we haven't even touched on the fact that this is a bit of a, a thriller-esque kind of plot. You know, you're you're searching for answers that you haven't found in a variety sense of the word. And there there's a lot of different interpersonal relationships kind of anchoring this book. And certainly think Singer Distance is worth a read. I recommend everyone pick it up.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that.
0: Absolutely. And so I want to take this moment to transition a little bit to the book you chose for this episode. And normally, you know, sometimes guests pick books that are not at all related to what they've written, you know, maybe it's a childhood favorite or what have you, you know, reading your book and reading today's book, Never Let Me Go. I mean, you can see some of the, the parallels there, you know, the idea of A world that feels similar to ours, but there are some differences. And okay, let let me just tell everybody here that I know the usual principle of your favorite book is to avoid spoilers. But Ethan, as you and I were talking about, this is the kind of book where if we're going to talk about it, we have to spoil everything. So if you have not read Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, Uh, Just pause the episode now, read the book. It's short. It's well worth your time. Come back and then enjoy what we have to say, because this is just one of those that you can't really avoid. Um, I have to shout out a past guest of the show, Maxwell Dunn, who recommended this book to me and said, don't look this book up. Don't read any summaries. Don't read anything about it. Just pick it up blind. Trust me. And I honestly think that's the way you should experience this book. So take my advice here. Pause it if you haven't read it, but if you have read this book, strap in, we're going to chat about it. And so Ethan, now that we've gotten that out of the way, when did you first read this book and what was your overall impression?
1: I think I first read this book, I would guess three to, no, probably a little more than that, probably four to five years ago. Uh, And uh, I was somewhat bored by the first third of it Mm -hmm. the first third yeah, it's it's got it's a book in three parts and the first third is kind of this almost like a boarding school novel and it's got interesting aspects and it's got hints of something deeper but it it moves along at a slow pace it's very patient Mm -hmm. Um, and I was considering putting it down when I was when I was around that third of the way mark and then I got to part two and it felt like, okay, this is pulling me in closer.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then I got to part three and it's like, this is pulling me in closer and like twisting a knife into my ribs. Yeah. Every page that I read. Yeah. So I like, um, and, it, and it's really fascinating to me. I feel like not putting it down as a, like a closing doors, what's called flighting doors moment in my, my writing life. Um, because there's just, so much that comes later and it relies on that first third where i wasn't as hooked but all that stuff just it's it's weight that makes the end of the book completely powerful so by the end of it i was like just like crushed and heartbroken in the way that i want a you know a good novel to do to me
0: yeah I I think that reading experience really sums up what it's like to read a lot of Ishiguro's work. So, um, this is my, this was my third book by him. I had not read this book before, uh, we planned this episode, but I had previously read, I actually kind of started a little backwards. Um, the first one I read was his most recent book, which was Clara and the sun, uh, which I read for a book club. And then I read the remains of the day with uh, another podcast guest and the reading experience you're describing with Never Let Me Go was very similar to my reading experience with The Ruins of the Day. It's yes, this yeah. slow moving book. And at first I'm like, oh gosh, how long can this butler sit and ruminate about the past? <laughs> and then slowly you're just brought in closer and closer and closer and you realized you know, even if you've zoned out a little bit, which I definitely did, like the impact, I a lot of it did stick with me and that's the testament to Ishiguro's writing. And then the impact, it just crushes you at the end. And I, I think I was patient through Never Let Me Go because I had had that previous reading experience and I kind of knew, okay, this is this is just what he does. Like just just stick with it, Malavika, and it's gonna pay off. And I think this is probably my favorite of the three that I've read, Um, it's just such a beautifully told story and absolutely heartbreaking. And I mean, since everybody listening hopefully has read the book already, I mean, you start off with this boarding school premise and you notice there are some cracks under the surface. You know, there there are some of these almost horror-like elements coming to the surface here and you have this great sense of unease and then you find out that the students at this boarding school are are clones who have been produced as sources for organ donation and their fates have kind of been decided for them. And it's, and you would think a premise like that seems so outlandish. And so like, you know, how would this even surprise you? But it's just told in such a methodical, interesting way that it does come up to shock you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I had the same experience with Remains of the Day. I had read that before and that's probably why I kept on going is because Mm -hmm. I that book too gains power as it goes I first read Ishiguro I read when we were orphans Mm -hmm. for a college class and it felt kind of like that first third of the other books but it didn't didn't gain that kind of power at the end and I was Mm -hmm. kind of I, I wasn't impressed by the whole thing and I didn't pick up Ishiguro again for like 15 years (laughs) and then I read Remains of the Day because I I saw some quotes from it and some talk about it made me want to pick it up and I did and I was like oh wow (laughs) what have I been missing and so I read that and then I read um, I read Never Let Me Go and I've read a few of the others now and now he's one of my two favorite writers and I just think like I almost could have missed the whole thing um, because of that that bad first experience but he is so interesting and so good in the way that he approaches plot where it's not propulsive it's not exactly twist but there's this way of gradually revealing information and revealing characters relationships to their secrets and to things that they kind of don't want to understand
0: mm-hmm.
1: that just it, it, you know has this incredible effect by the end
0: And it's so hard to do this because there's a fine line between slowly revealing information and feeling like it's being purposefully withheld to manipulate the reader or, you know, it's being teased too much to the point where like, oh, they're holding this back for the sake of the plot. But Ishiguro manages to do this slow reveal because we're learning along with the characters to some extent, you know, it it ends up feeling more like a puzzle that you're putting together rather than someone holding all the cards from you. And I think that's just such a hard balance to strike.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think part of the power is you're usually figuring out some of the, the things that the characters don't want to know before they do. So you can see, that these things like Stevens, the butler in Remains of the Day, Mm -hmm. or like the students in Never Let Me Go, the things that are their illusions and that that are really fragile, but they're holding on to them. And you can see before it happens that those illusions are not going to hold by the
0: end. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of it is just the, the talent for point of view that Ishiguro sort of identifies. I mean, most of this, this story is told by Kathy, who is one of the students. She, you know, comes up in this boarding school and now she's, you know, in her twenties, her you know, she's been an adult for some time and sort of looking back on her life, you know, in both the past, you know, the distant past as well as the recent past. And her point of view is so interesting to me because I feel like in the hands of other writers, it would be really easy for this story to take on like a really large scope. We'd have to understand the whole history of this organ donation. We'd have to understand like what it took to get here and all of that, all of this backstory. And Ishigar is like, Nope, we don't need any of that. We just need this character's sort of personal, you know, navigation through this world with the hands that she's been dealt. And we only need the information that's relevant to that. And, you know, it, entrenches the story in the literary but also sort of you know keeps you wondering about what has been put into place in order for this to occur and it's just so wonderfully framed.
1: Yes, yeah, there's a sense of mystery, but it's not about like clues and it's not about solving the mystery, but it's just about understanding the way the world that he's creating is is tweaked because it feels so familiar and so otherworldly at the same time. That feels like his, his hallmark to me.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, and again, you know, it's similar to your book where it it's so, just sort of this alternate look at a world that feels familiar, but then just takes a turn in one direction that for, for the sake of what's being developed, but also like your book, it is very much about the relationships here. So we see how Kathy relates to, The guardians who are kind of the instructors at this school, and you know, their sort of mixed feelings about the institution as a whole, her feelings uh, to her best friend Ruth, and then Tommy, and how that changes over time. And you know, I always say, like, the whole myth of a reliable versus unreliable narrator that's not really a thing. I think every narrator is unreliable, they can only tell a story from their perspective. Um, But we definitely see that through Kathy as she is limited by how she has been raised and the the impact on us which feels so heartbreaking towards the end it almost just feels like a foregone conclusion to her because there's there's no way she can kind of interpret this differently
1: yeah and you kind of learn that the the limited information that she had and the limited perspective that she had about you know what her purpose is in the world is by design mm-hmm. and they, you know, the, the people who ran the school uh, you know, are basically trying to give the kids in a child, you know, keep, give the kids a childhood and, and do that by, they don't withhold all the information. The kids have a kind of a, a general sense of what's in store for them, but it just, it's given to them in a way designed not to impact them. And to just be some background noise in their childhood that they don't think about much. And that's kind of why that's where you start to get set up this illusion, this idea of the world and what life could be like that then comes under increasing pressure as as you get closer to the end of the book.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's just amazing how the world of the students, it, it moves so slowly in that first third. Uh, But then you start to just pick up on little details, like how these characters talk to each other and how that reveals so much about what's coming, you know, the the subtle ways that they shame each other, or, you know, the ideological differences between uh, the students and the teachers or between the teachers themselves and the emotional intelligence or lack thereof of characters trying to pick up on each other's cues. It's such, it's, it's like a very slow moving chess game is what we have here and for it to sort of progress in the way it does and just sort of take you off a cliff towards the end. I mean, it, it's remarkable. I mean, I, I do agree the beginning gets slow and it's easy for first time readers to sort of lose faith in it, but, but stick with it, honestly, like it's, it's really something.
1: Yeah, I felt the same. I read The Buried Giant earlier this year, which mm-hmm. is, I think it had kind of a mixed reception when it came out. Um, but I I loved it. You know, I loved it. i probably not quite on par with Never Let Me Go and Remains of the Day, which are two of my favorite novels. But it felt pretty close to that for me. And it, too, started off, like, first few chapters. I was like, okay, this is going pretty slow. But by now I know, like, okay, that's probably that's – probably, probably actually a good sign that this stuff is going to become important later on. And it was.
0: Yeah, I haven't read that one yet. I mean, I've I'm definitely eager to read more because I feel like every book that he's written is so different from the the next and the other, like he's always exploring these new ideas and new themes. And I had my uh, issues with Clara and the sun, mostly because it touches a lot about genetics, and that's my uh, professional area, oh, that's yeah. <laughs> the field I work in. And I'm like, well, you missed this part, but um, but other than that, I mean, I've just been so impressed by the world he's able to create, the the characterizations he's able to craft, and most importantly, just the voices that he embodies. Just getting into these characters' heads, you know, it's it's so interior. You know, you're really getting how everyone thinks and feels through this character's lens. And it's, it's really just a masterclass and getting really close to a character and just understanding them inside and out.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that I've been thinking a lot lately and thinking as I read his books is about plot. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times I see writers kind of reacting against plot, like, you know, pitting plot as something that's an obstacle sometimes or something that gets in the way of art making. And I think it can be, you know, if, if you're taking, you know, cheap dramatic plot turns, then that can sometimes get in the way of a more artful plot decision.
0: Mm -hmm. But
1: to me, plot is something Mm -hmm. where when it's done right, it absolutely becomes vital to art making. And I think, I don't think this is probably ever more true than with Ishiguro where the plot is really, really the thing that makes the novels work so well. The characterization is great. The writing is great, but you can feel the way these novels are pointed at a single scene or two scenes near the end of the book where everything that came before has this impact that all hits at once. Uh, And I don't, you know, if you changed around the order of some things or, or changed, Little plot things here or there, you would lose that impact. And so I think, yeah, you know, I think all the time about how the way he creates the plot is what brings so much of the art into the books. And it's something that I, you know, I I wish I could emulate. I I kind of try. I feel like my novel writing process is to get a hold of something that feels like a an Ishiguro premise. And then mm-hmm. fall short of it, which is it's kind of okay. Yeah, I I like that as a process.
0: I feel like we all can't come out of the gate like Nobel Prize winning quality, you know. Like <laughs> <laughs> there's a certain you know emulation involved there, but I I really like what you're saying about plot here. I feel like there are some books that are you know quote unquote character instead of plot, but I think Ishiguro exemplifies character that is plot. Yeah, like, that that's just sort of what I see here. The characters are the plot and their evolution is just naturally what drives the story along. And, you know, it can be a hard balance to strike, but I mean, he's so renowned for a reason. He does it beautifully. Yeah.
1: Uh, Yeah. And and I I don't mean to say that all novels have to kind of rely on plot as their engine, but, but when someone can, can do it like this, it really goes to, to just show like, okay, plot can be used for good. <laughs> you know I feel like a lot of writers think plot plot can only be used for evil or like for right. for Hollywood uh, <laughs> but but there's a lot that that can be done that just furthers the art and deepens the art and works in conjunction with all the other elements of writing.
0: Absolutely. I think that's beautifully put. And this is a little sort of off topic, but you mentioned this early, and I wanted to ask, you said Ishiguro is one of your two favorite writers. who's the other?
1: The other one is Louise Erdrich.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. I have yet to read any Erdrich, but I have a few of her books on my shelf, and I just still haven't gotten to them.
1: We're right on the brink of Nobel Prize announcement season, and so I always, pretty much every year, I've got Louise Erdrich as my personal favorite. I don't, I don't think the academy is out there listening to me or anything, but, but <laughs> she's always who I'm rooting for. At least since since Ishiguro won, yeah. Um, but I feel like I can call them both a favorite because they're so different. You know, I think of yes. Ishiguro as having these sort of like singular storylines focused on a small cast of characters and their individual stories. Um, Louise Erdrich, she does kind of all, all sorts of stuff, but there's a lot of big casts in her novels, interconnected communities. And so I sort of think as of Louise Erdrich as my favorite novelist about communities, towns, cities, um, and, and just inner interconnections across history and, um, just in, in different spaces in the U S she's a native American writer. And so, um, it's a lot of native American history interacting with, um, you know, white settler history as it came into the region and that sort of thing, um, and so I feel like they're they're both like the perfect example of these two different directions for the novel.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's beautifully put. I just always, you know, the, the show is called Your Favorite Book. So when people mention favorites, I I got to dig into that. I'm like, I, I got to know, you know, who are the, the writers that inspire and, you know, strike on all of us. And I think Ishiguro, you know, just continues to impress me the more I read and, you know, on that topic of sort of comparing to other writers and other books, you know, um, it's hard to compare this book to other books. I mean, obviously, I think if you've read this one, uh, I lo- I really liked The Remains of the Day. I think Clara and the Sun is good, too. I think all, a lot of Ishiguro's back catalog is worth diving into, and I intend to. But. Uh, for my recommendation, I'm going to go way out of left field here and kind of go based on the themes of this book rather than the style. Um <laughs> I'm going to go with a YA book from when I was a kid. Um, so if you have any like 12 to 13 year olds in your life that uh, are too a little too young for Ishiguro, um, might I recommend Unwind by Neil Schusterman? <laughs> um, and so for everyone listening, I've talked about this book on the show before, but this book was really formative to me. When I was in the sixth grade, I won a writing award and Neil Schusterman was the speaker at the award ceremony. And so I got a bunch of copies of his books and I read them all. And this particular book basically takes on a very dark premise. And it is the idea that in the future, there is a civil war fought over abortion. And what occurs is a compromise in which abortion is illegal But um, what what you can do instead is um, when a teenager turns 13, um, they can be unwound, which essentially means they can be stripped for parts uh, for organ donation. And you're like, how on earth is this book for children? But this book is for children. Um, And it is a wild ride. Um, It really dives into a lot of interesting socioeconomic topics really gets into ethics. I mean, it, it's meant for a younger audience, but I come back to it every now and then because I just find it a really engaging, interesting read. And it challenged me a lot when I was young. And I guess the the plot elements here of Never Let Me Go, the whole time I was thinking, maybe Neil Shusterman was thinking of Never Let Me Go when he wrote this book, although I don't know that for sure. But that's what I'm going to throw in as far as a recommendation. But um, Ethan, do you have one that you'd throw in?
1: Yeah. Um, first, uh, let me say, uh, that sounds great. I'm going to look that up. My son's 10. So it sounds like he might need another year or two before that's like his interest level. But I'm going to I'm going to write that down and keep it on the list. Um, and I can see why it's you- It's so
0: good. It's a whole, I think it's either three or four books. I remember reading the first few, but I was about 12 when I read it and absolutely loved it. So yeah, keep that in mind for the young ones.
1: <laughs> yeah, I will. Um, I'll, I'm going to recommend Ted Chang. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's got two collections uh, and I'll recommend one in particular for the connection here. And it's one that, that feels like it's connected to singer distance a bit too. Mm -hmm. Uh, His first collection was called stories of your life and others. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the title story of it was made into the movie arrival, the Adams movie. Uh, And now I think they're actually selling the, Collection under the title Arrival, which I mm. I don't necessarily like that kind of movie based change, but that yeah. might be what you find it as now. Um, and uh, not just that story, but a lot of his stories have something that investigate one slight difference with the world. Like there's one in which uh, someone invents uh, like a cube that can allow you to communicate with your other multiverse. Selves. So you can say like, you know, hey, did you did you break up with your girlfriend? And was that a good choice or a bad choice? And so people start to get feedback about their lives from other multiverses. Or there's just some aspect of like a gate that can let you travel from one specific point in time to another. Mm. Um, in um, in the title story of Arrival or stories of your life, uh, there's are aliens who visit Earth. And the linguist learning their language starts to figure out that learning the language is affecting her perception of reality. Mm. And so you have these things that feel half like real life and half like a fable. Um, and it's um, it's they're always just fascinating. They um, sometimes they feel like more like they're they're aimed for the head and that like sort of, Petty science fiction, investigating a concept, sort of thing, um, but but a lot of times there's a strong emotional component too. And in story of your life, um, there's there's definitely that like parent child relationship that gives an emotional grounding to the book too.
0: Yeah, that, that that's such a great recommendation and. As soon as you mentioned arrival, I was like, that's what's falling into place for me here, you know, both between Never Let Me Go and, and your book as well, you know, that idea of translation in some form affecting our perception of reality. And you can think of translation, you know, in a literal sense. And you can also think of it in terms of how we are presented with a narrative affects our perception of reality, you know, how this is given to us is going to change how we sort of conceptualize it. And I think that's a that's a beautiful recommendation. And I was thinking about you saying that the collection's being renamed Arrival, and that sort of reminds me of, you know, when you see books with the movie cover instead of their original cover, and you're always like, oh, not the movie cover. Like,
1: <laughs> Yeah, I think it's got a movie cover now too, which I guess right? you can't fight against it. I wish I had a, a pre-movie copy, but I got it on ebook, I think after the movie was was made, or at least after the poster was made. <laughs>
0: All right. And so Ethan, um, before we close out today, where can we find you and where can we find your book?
1: Sure. I'm on, on most of the social media channels. You can find me on Twitter or on Instagram at Ethan Chatonier. That's hard to spell. I guess I'll give a a quick spelling C-H-A-T-A-G-N-I-E-R. But mostly you can probably find me easier just by looking up Singer Distance on one of those platforms and, <laughs> and finding me that way. Um, and, um, and yeah, I'm always happy to connect with new people there. Um, the book is, uh, should be available everywhere books are sold. You know, the best place to buy it is an, at an independent bookstore. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, any, wherever you usually get your books, you should be able to find it there.
0: Absolutely. And we'll have a link to it in the show notes, um, along with the full spelling of your name. So people will be able to find that. As someone with a tough name to spell and pronounce myself, you know, that's something I'm a stickler for. And so, Ethan, thank you so much for sharing not only your work, but more Ishiguro. You can never have too much. And I really appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast.